Well, good morning. This is a special treat for us today to have Terry Enns here uh, to preach in my place. Uh, my wife is out of town this week that was on the books for months and months ahead of time, and uh, so we asked Terry to come in and fill in today for me, and, uh, and then next week I'll be in the pulpit again, uh, Lord willing. Uh, I want to introduce Terry to you, and I'm, I'm not sure how to do it. Uh, this dear brother has uh, become more than a brother to me and over the years, uh, and I'm sure bits and pieces you have heard of my many travels. N nobody's more surprised than I am that uh, the Lord has given me part of my ministry uh, just all over the world. And um, somewhere along the line, Terry joined me in those trips. And uh, uh, some of the things that have happened along the way were just absolutely amazing. Some of them were just terrifying, and some of them were just downright funny. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you one. We were, can I, I can talk about this, right? Uh, so Terry was never a coffee drinker. You know me, I've got an IV of a coffee, you know, all the time. We were in Siberia. We were in Irkutsk, Siberia, uh, together to teach at a, uh, at a, a ministry event, uh, biblical counseling, and we were at uh, Lake Baikal, and a uh, wonderful church there, and Terry had never had coffee. So the way this normally works, when we land, we get a few hours, and sometimes not even a few hours, before we get off the plane, we drop our suitcase, we walk into the church, and we start teaching. And we were dead, tired. And uh, that night, um, of course, I always go to sleep immediately when my head hits the pillow, and he could not sleep. This non-coffee drinker could not sleep. And uh, the next, next morning, he woke up early, and he thought, well, maybe I'll try coffee. So he drank the instant coffee in the room, and then he drank the tea that was in the room, and then there was a basement cafe, and we went down, and he drank uh, an Americano. And the only way, two Americanos, which I would never do. But um, have you ever seen the uh, animated movie called Hoodwinked? And you remember the squirrel? That was Terry. In fact, Eric Mock had to come to him and said, Brother, you've got to settle down. You're going to have a heart attack. Uh, so many wonderful experiences, mainly just uh, preaching the word together and laughing hysterically as we go from country to country. And, and um, honestly, I, I never thought that I would uh, ever be a senior pastor. Uh, I vowed that I never would. And it's amazing when, you, when we look back and realize so many things we, we never had on our radar. And the Lord has just been faithful to give us things and to do things that we could never have imagined or planned for. And uh, this friendship is one of them. Uh, Terry and I knew each other from afar. He, his church is in Granbury. And um, Terry's been there for uh, 32 years. It'll be 32 years this week. So he's been doing this longer than I have. And all in the same church. And um, praise God for that. He's been married for 35 years to Ray Jean. And, um, when I got my original diagnosis, which we thought later was wrong, and it wasn't, um, the first thing we did was we told our children, and we met with the elders and told them, 
And the next thing I did was call Terry. And um, he's a dear brother to me. And for many of you, he has been a dear brother to you as well. And so it's my joy, and um, it's beyond joy to have you come. So would you come? This is a too hanky sermon, just telling you. <laughs> Somebody's thought ahead. I bring you greetings from Grace Bible Church in Granbury. <laughs> when I first went to the church, a lady asked me, one of the deacon's wives asked me, are you emotional? I said, no, really, I'm pretty, pretty, pretty level, pretty, pretty constant, you know, always in control of my emotions. I cried the first Sunday I was there. <laughs> She said, I thought, thought, you were, thought you weren't very emotional. I said, well, I guess I didn't know myself very well. I have a wide emotional range. Um, our church has been praying for you guys, been praying for Dan uh, for a long time. And the uh, last couple of weeks, as I shared with our body that I'd be here this Sunday, and they graciously allowed me to be here. Um, since that time, virtually every conversation People are asking, how are the folks at Calvary? How's Dan? How can we pray? So you are covered in prayer uh, by the saints at Granbury. And I just count it a great privilege to be here. A um, couple of mo opening remarks. Just get this stuff out of the way and then come to the text that I trust will be an encouragement to us. Um, seven years ago, um, I knew Dan from a distance, more or less, and we'd done conference stuff together uh, through CBCD. And uh, on a Monday afternoon, my phone rang, and Dan Kirk, that's kind of weird that Dan would call me on a Monday afternoon, and I thought, well, I wonder what Dan's wanting. Hey, hey, Dan, how are you doing? And it's, when, when Dan and I talk, it's never quiet, it's always loud, it's always boisterous. And <laughs> um, hey, brother! <laughs> and we got the pleasantries out of the way, and he said, I need you to do me a favor. And I'm thinking, okay, he's going to be out of town, out of the pulpit. I think um, you were in transition between Brent and Keith at that time. And, uh, and so he needs me to come and preach for him. And so I, I'm kind of mentally gearing up for that. And he says, I need you to go to Uganda with me and preach about preaching. And it's a totally different thing than I, what, uh, what I was anticipating. And so we went... Uh, January 2016, along with Russ Dar. Where's Russ? I, is Russ here? If Russ is in the other room. So we went with Russ Dar on that trip, and um, what a delight. And then from there, we went to Siberia, uh, two different locations in Siberia. And then after that, we went to Siberia again because we love Siberia and all the great food in Siberia. <laughs> Side note, well, one of the trips while I was in Siberia eating a thin cabbage soup, my wife and daughter, who's here this morning as well with her husband, Daniel, they were in France and sending me pictures of the food they were eating in France. It was just, and I was paying for both trips. It's just so wrong. And they've never confessed that to me. They always just laugh at me. So, like they're doing now. Um, and uh, we went uh, back to Irkutsk and then on to Israel and then another trip, Ukraine and Israel. And then this last February to Dubai. 
Um, I've learned much from your pastor on those trips. Invariably on my phone, you know how your phone pulls up pictures? Uh, Invariably, it pulls up pictures on our trips. And it just always brings up sweet memories of those trips. Um, I've always been encouraged. I've always been strengthened by our fellowship, uh, even though wearied by crossing 13 time zones, which is our personal record. Um, I learned a lesson from him on one of those trips about not preaching from an iPad. Don't preach from an iPad because he went to preach in Irkutsk and, um, and his iPad wouldn't turn on. And so he's fiddling with that thing trying to make it go and it wouldn't go. It is frozen, locked, solid. And he goes, okay, well, here goes. And he preached with confidence and joy and effectiveness. It was a delight to watch. And he came and sat down and the iPad turned right on. <laughs> And so what I learned was always have a backup copy when you preach from your iPad. Um, He called me 16 months ago to tell of his original diagnosis. Over those trips, we've just become bonded. It's been a sweet, sweet fellowship between the two of us. And he promised, uh, made me promise to not tell a soul. I did tell my wife. He gave me permission to do that. And he said, I've got early onset Alzheimer's. I'm a biblical counselor. I'm supposed to know what to say. I just told him, I'll never forget that phone call. We talked about that the other day. I just said, brother, I don't know what to say. So we wept. We laughed because we always laugh when we call. And we wept some more and we prayed. Um, And we have prayed many days beyond that. I love your pastor. He is a treasured friend. On Sunday morning, there is no place I would rather be than in the pulpit of Grace Bible Church in Granbury. Um, That's where I want to be. That's where I love to serve, um, except today. I told my people, I said, you know, I always want to be with you, but today, this is where I want to be, above all else. It's an amazing privilege to be able to come alongside um, many of the friends that we know here, Dan, Randy, I got to know Randy, I did Randy's supervision for ACBC and we've become good friends and he's a delight to my heart as well. And of course Jason we've known for a long time and uh, worked alongside with ACBC and Russ and Rod and Ken Basinger and a lot of our church migrated up here because the preaching is better up here than in Granbury I guess. I love this I love this man, I love this church, I love what this church stands for, and I, I count it an immense honor to be able to stand in this pulpit today. This pulpit has stood for the truth for so long, and that's where I want to take you this morning. My goal, as I understand it today, I've been asked to do at least three things. I want to thank the Lord and rejoice over the provision that Dan has been to you. I want to encourage Randy and Jason in their task of leading you in the days to come. And I want to embolden you as your ship of ministry has taken on a tidal wave of trouble. So that's three sermons, and I've been thinking about literally dozens of texts to take you to. And so, Dan, I hope you bought lunch for these dear people, because I've got a lot to say. (laughs) We need the Lord to guide us this morning. Would you bow with me? And let's commend our time to him. Thank you, Father, that your 
trustworthy, you're faithful, you're so good, you gospel is infinitely, astoundingly powerful. You, you use broken and weak people to carry out the eternal treasures and power of the gospel. You not only use weak and broken people, that's all you have. And we see the power of the gospel doing amazing things. We thank you. Thank you for how that gospel unites us to you in eternal confidence and for eternal joy. And we thank you for how that gospel unites us to one another. How sweet must the fellowship in heaven be if we have the sweetness of fellowship that we have here. And so we thank you for this gospel. Thank you for this Savior. We thank you for this word. We thank you for our hope in you. And might we be satisfied with you as we come to consider who you are, what you do this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I do not do change well. I like my routine. Regular is good. If it ain't, if it, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. If it is broke, don't buy a new one. Fix it. Because the old one is invariably better than the new one. Always. That has led to more than one interesting discussion with my wife who is invigorated by change. Um, she looks at a wall and says, we've had it that color for a year, it's time to change it. I'm saying, we've had it that color for 20 years, why change now? I'm just getting used to it. We've lived in the same house for 26 years. In more than 40 years of driving, I think I've purchased eight cars and I would happily have had that be four cars or less if I could have just kept fixing them. But at some point, you just got to stop fixing them. I'm the pastor of Grace Bible Church. That's the third Grace Bible Church I've been a member of. I like that name. It's a good name. <laughs> our associate pastor and I have our staff meeting at a restaurant uh, right by the church. It's very much like Kincaid's. I order the same thing every time we go. I get a chicken salad. No chips, no onions, extra lettuce, and a water, and a honey mustard dressing. Out of the corner of my eye, I can see Keith's lips moving as I'm making the order. Once a year, once a year, I order a hamburger and fried jalapenos, and the waitstaff knows that's my birthday week, because that's what I do on my birthday week. I order a hamburger and fried jalapenos. In fact, the waitstaff knows, one of the, one of the waiters, waitresses knows my birthday uh, because of that. I exercise on the same days at the same time every week. My schedule is entirely predictable. My family, my church staff, church members all know about it and they tease me about it. I've been the same pastor of, I've been the pastor of the same church for 30 years, 32 actually this week. I mean, why? Because I just can't imagine leaving. Same is good. Not infrequently, the Lord interjects circumstances into light, my life that compel me to change. Sometimes for a day, sometimes for a week or two, sometimes permanently. Change is ever-present around us, isn't it? The house gets painted, gardens get replaced. 
My wife told me two weeks ago, she said, the garden, the, the yard is perfect. We don't need to do another thing. I just started laughing. I said, until next week, when you find the additional plants at Lowe's that you want planted. People drop into my office, change my schedule. People go into the hospital, change my schedule. Funerals happen, need to be conducted. Cars break down, have to be replaced. Restaurants run out of salad and you have to order a chicken salad or chicken sandwich instead of a chicken salad. And pastors have to retire because of illness. How do you handle change? How are you handling this bombshell of a change in your church? Some of you have had one senior pastor in your life. Others of you have experienced profound change and growth under Dan's ministry here at Calvary like nowhere else. Others of you have been in a small group. You've been counseled by him. You've been married by him. You've had family members buried by him. He's not just your pastor. He's your friend. He's your brother. He's your co-laborer. And God has intervened in Dan's life in an unexpected way in an unexpected time. And it has not only affected him profoundly, but it is also profoundly impacting you. One of the core values of our church is we believe in the value of trials and problems, both mine and yours, because we understand that your problems impact me and my problems impact you. And as you grow, in yours, that benefits me, and as I grow through mine, that benefits you. I say all the time, we don't sin in isolation. It always impacts our sin, always impacts other people. It's also true that we don't suffer in isolation. If one member of the body suffers, it impacts the entire church. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12. How will you respond as your leader has been laid aside by the Lord? How will you respond to new leadership? What will anchor your soul? when it is tempted to unrest in this season. Your pastor is not the first man to be laid aside by illness, even in unexpected ways. So what I want to do this morning is take you to a passage in Scripture that also deals with what might have been a very difficult transition to see what the Lord might teach us about this transition and who he is. Turn in your Bibles, if you haven't done so already, to Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1. Let me read the opening nine verses. Joshua 1, starting in verse 1. Now it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord. Of, it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying... Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and as far as the great sea toward the setting of the sun will be your territory. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Be strong 
and courageous. For you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give to them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn it Turn from it to the right or to the left so that you may have success wherever you go. And this book of the law shall not depart from out of your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. This is the living word of the living God. I think it was Thursday afternoon, I was talking to Anita about the bulletin and so on. Dan happened to be in the office. Actually, he called me and, uh, and said, hey, I uh, need that information. And by the way, what are you preaching? I've been dying to ask you, what are you preaching? And I told him. He said, are you serious? He said, verses 8 and 9, were my life verse in college. I didn't know that, so I just found out something else about my friend. I want to walk you through this passage, honestly, not in as much detail as I'd like to, um, but I want to point you uh, to circumstances and to the God behind the circumstances. And what you're going to see in this passage, among all the other things, is a grand and glorious picture about the nature and character of God. All scripture ultimately is always about God. It's always revelatory about Him. It's to guide us to Him, to make us to hold on to Him, to cling to Him, to reveal His goodness, His grace, His sufficiency, His power, His authority. What are we going to learn about leadership transitions? Because that's what's going on in this text, is a massive leadership transition. And what we will learn is that when life and leaders change, the unchanging God is ever trustworthy. There's a lot of transition going on here. And God is trustworthy. I don't know, but that in your own personal lives, you may be undergoing a lot of transition and change as well. And God is trustworthy. You can lean on to Him. You can hold on to Him. What we're going to find in this passage is that when life and leaders change, the unchanging God is ever trustworthy. And we're going to see, as we look at this passage, three particular aspects of God's nature that we should trust. God is trustworthy. Why should we trust Him? First, trust, verse 1, God's sovereign, redirecting will. Trust God's sovereign, redirecting will. Notice the text, verse 1, now, stop there. I told you, I'm not going to say everything I want to say. Going that slowly, I won't. The word now is a conjunction. It could actually be translated and. That's typically the way it's translated in the Old Testament. They've translated it now in this instance, and it's a legitimate translation, because it has the sense of a continuation from the previous story. Now, this is the first word of the book, of Joshua's book, but it's continuing what Moses wrote, or probably actually what Joshua wrote in Deuteronomy 34, because we know, uh, uh, we know Moses did not write Deuteronomy 34 because it's the account of his death. 
And no, excuse me, Jonah, Jonah, Joshua, I, yeah, I've been all over the Bible in the last few months, so hang with me. Um, Joshua's writing this with the understanding that in the background of the people's minds, Moses' death is clear. That's what they're thinking about. That's what's dominating, and he's transitioning from Deuteronomy 34 into this story. This is a continuation. Moses died, 34.5. Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there. Deuteronomy 34.5. Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And they, he buried, God buried him in the valley of the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor, but no man knows his burial place to this day. Three times in those verses, it alludes to the fact that Moses died. He's dead. He's buried. He's buried. Now, come to Joshua 1. Now, it came about after the death of Moses, verse 2, Moses, my servant, is dead. He wants us to understand. Moses is gone. They mourned for 30 days. We know that from verse 8 of Deuteronomy 34. And now, Moses is dead. Moses is buried. No one knows where Moses is buried. We mourn for 30 days. We're grieving. And now, and now what? Well, let's stop and think for just a moment about who this Moses was. Who, who, who was Moses? Well, the text identifies that Joshua says he was the servant of the Lord. You might not think it, but that's a particularly unique designation. It's used only 21 times in the Old Testament. And two of those times are actually edited by editors that are actually probably not part of the text. Two Psalms, it says of David that he was a servant of the Lord. Two more times, it says of Joshua that he was a servant of the Lord. Seventeen times, it says of Moses, he was a servant of the Lord. And it's, it's a phrase that marks the uniqueness and the character of Moses' life. He's one that is particularly honorable, one who is marked out with a particular piety. He, this, is, this is an especially godly man. And, and we see that all through the Old Testament, don't we? He, he's the main character of the Pentateuch. I mean, he doesn't appear in Genesis, but you turn the page from Genesis to Exodus, Moses is on page one of Exodus, Exodus one, and he permeates the rest of the Pentateuch. He's on virtually every page, and he's in the background of every verse in the Pentateuch. He's just, he is the character of the first five books of the Old Testament. He's not only the main character, but he is singular in his actions. Moses was the one who received directly from God, in God's presence, the law of God. No one else. And he received it twice because of the golden calf. And Aaron doing what Aaron shouldn't have been doing in that. And he came down, smashed the tablets, went back up and got him again and came back down. No one else, Moses alone. It was the prayer of Moses that precluded God from destroying the nation after the golden calf. Even Aaron had abdicated. Moses didn't. In fact, notice what it says about Moses in 3410 of Deuteronomy. Just scan up to the top of the page. Since that time, speaking about Moses, since that time, no prophet in, has arisen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face for all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh, all his servants and all his land. This is a singular prophet until the great prophet Jesus arises. 
This, this, is a, this is a unique man. Notice verse 7. Speaking about Moses, only be strong and courageous. He says, be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you to do. It's not just that Moses is the main character of these books. Moses wrote these books. In fact, all of the Bible, all of the revealed word of God that the nation had at that time came through Moses' pen. Five books of, of, of Moses. That was all they had. And Moses wrote all of it. He dominated those books. He dominates the book of Joshua. He's mentioned in verse 1, 2, 3, 5, 7 and 8, 13, 15, and 17. And he's mentioned in the book 58 times. And you think of the book of Joshua, you think, well, it's the book about Joshua. And that's true. But, but Moses is clearly in the background. This is, this is all about Moses. Moses is gone. But Moses is still large. His shadow looms. And just a, a reminder, this is free. Um, just a reminder. Just because someone is gone doesn't mean the influence is gone. The influence carries. And that, that can be for good and for ill, can't it? It, it ought to make us think, what, what kind of legacy am I leaving? Because it's going to carry on past me. And aren't you thankful that you have a pastor that's left the kind of legacy that he has. Faithfulness. Never question about integrity. You know he's going to do the right kinds of things. We thank God for people like that. And we also take comfort from the fact when ministry changes, when people change, there's still the influence that continues from them. And we are grateful for that. We know from the background, though Joshua doesn't say it explicitly here or in Deuteronomy 34, we understand that the reason that Moses died at this time is it's time to enter the land and Moses was told you can't enter the land because of disobedience. It was God's discipline on Moses. And the nation knew that. Joshua knew that. They knew it was coming. They knew, they knew that, jo that Moses had to be laid aside. Praise God that that's not the circumstance here. They knew that Moses had to be laid aside, but don't you think that all those years that Moses led them through the wilderness, in the wilderness, all the things that came from him in miracles, all the things that came from his pen, don't you think that in the back of their minds they're thinking, well, who can lead us into the land but Moses? It has to be Moses. God has redirected Israel's anticipated plans. His sovereign will has been revealed. And it's not Moses. Moses is not the man to lead them into the land. And even as God revealed that will to Israel, and it had to be a shock to them, even though they knew it was coming, my guess is that in a similar way, the things that have transpired here over the last month have been a shock to you, and you don't understand them either. Sometimes things come to us from God's sovereign hand as a severe mercy. One of C.S. Lewis's friends wrote a book with that title, and that has resonated with me for years. Uh, there's mercy in it, but it comes with severity. And that's, that's what y'all are going through. It's a mercy because it's God's sovereign will and he is only a merciful God. 
And we know that it comes with mercy, but there's a severity and a harshness to it, isn't there? It is into this despair that the Israelites almost certainly had to be experiencing that Joshua says this. Notice verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord spoke. Here is the infinite God speaking personally and personably into difficult circumstances. The transcendent God is not only approachable, but he is now approaching man in his need. He's inserting himself into Joshua's and Israel's problems. Like Christ weeping at Lazarus' tomb, here is the Father speaking to a grieving nation and likely an overwhelmed leader to tell them what they need to hear. Isn't that just like our gracious God? And this phrase also reinforces the fact that the source of Joshua's commissioning as the leader of Israel did not come from the people, it came from the Lord. It was God who called, it was God who positioned Joshua as the next leader of Israel. It was, it was God who was behind it, and it reminds us that this is not Joshua's ministry, it is God's ministry, and he is using Joshua. Just as it was God's ministry, and he used a weak man named Moses to accomplish his purposes. Says one writer about this passage, leaders don't lead forever, even godly leaders like Moses. There comes a time in every ministry when God calls for a new beginning with a new generation and a new leadership. God's leaders inevitably change. Always have. God's work always continues. Leaders change. God's ministry continues. Notice also something that's very subtle in this text. It came about after the death of Moses. Moses is dead. Think about it. Moses is silent. The Lord spoke. Moses is gone. God is present. Moses is silent. God speaks. And it's a reminder that while Moses is no longer alive and no longer speaking, God is alive and God is speaking. Says one writer, from the human standpoint, from the human point of view, the transition from Moses to Joshua was, was momentous. But the real leader of Israel, Jehovah, was alive. It was he who now communicated with Joshua. Whatever leadership, Calvary Bible Church is grace to have. The leader never dies and never transitions. He never changes, even as he did not change with Moses, Joshua, and Israel, and all those who followed from them. God remains. Earthly leaders change, but our, our sovereign heavenly ruler does not change, and his word that promises us him and guides us and directs us does not change. And brothers and sisters, we dare not trust that generically. We must trust that particularly today, in this season of this church and this church's life. We must be aware as well that Moses' death was not accidental. God sovereignly appointed his days. He appointed the beginning of his ministry. He appointed the end of his ministry. And brothers and sisters, Dan's illness is not accidental. 
We've talked about that. We know that. It's difficult, but it's no accident. God has sovereignly directed this. What did Moses think about that, do you think? How did Moses process? I sinned. God's going to take me out, remove me from leadership, and I'm not going to do the thing that I want to do in ministry. We know what he thought about it because he told us. Psalm 90. It's the only psalm in the Psalter that's penned by Moses. Now, he wrote other songs. We have that in the Pentateuch. But this is the only one in the Psalter. That's why we read it earlier this morning. Verse 10. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone and we fly away. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury? I think he's thinking there about his disi- the God's discipline on his life according to the fear that is due you. Verse 12. So, teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. What did Moses think about the fact that he wasn't taking the people into the land? I want to be wise and use my days well. Would you teach me to do that? Moses trusted God. Joshua trusted God. I trust God. We trust God. I told you that there was a lot that I learned from Dan as we traveled. Here's one of those things. We were traveling one time. I think it was in Siberia. We have a lot of Siberia stories. We need to upgrade those. Um, We were in Siberia, I think, somewhere. And something was going on, as it inevitably did on the trips. And we're sitting in a car... And Dan just kind of looks over at me. And you know, he kind of tilts his head. And he gives me the smile. And he says, brother, we are in the Lord's place, moving at the Lord's pace. And that became kind of a mantra for a lot of our trips. <laughs> and we have shared that with each other in this circumstance over these last 18 months-ish You are not in an accidental place. The Lord has you in this place for his purpose, for Dan's purpose, for this leadership's purpose, for your purpose, for your good. It's part of God's secret, wise, good plan. It's a hard plan, isn't it? But it's a good plan. It's good for Dan, though hard. It's good for Randy and Jason, Russ, Rod, other elders that you will have in the future. It's good for the members of CBC. It's good for the honoring of the name of Christ. Brothers and sisters, God is good. And he is trustworthy. He is still speaking in his word to us, guiding us, accomplishing his purposes. A few weeks ago when Dan told me of his plan to retire, he read me the text that he sent to his family. I hurriedly tried to write it down. I didn't write it all down. But I wrote down this phrase. He said, we are following the good shepherd so we are on the right path. That's your shepherd in his illness and weakness still leading his family to the Savior. He's right. 
God is a sovereign shepherd and he is a good shepherd in all that he does. As with Moses and Joshua, this is God's plan. It's a hard plan, but it's a good plan. In this passage, we're reminded to trust God because of three aspects of God's nature. Trust his sovereign will, even when it redirects our plans. Secondly, trust God's gracious present promises. Trust God's gracious present promises. I promise I'm going to go faster, though. I'm not going to finish at 1135. Middle of verse 1, the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun. Moses' servant. Isn't that interesting? Moses is the Lord's servant and Joshua is Moses' servant. Gives you a sense of the pecking order, doesn't it? Now, Joshua would be called servant of the Lord elsewhere, but it helps us to understand that Moses, Joshua understood his place. That from a human perspective, Moses was the greater and he was the lesser. So who was this Joshua that God was speaking to? He was born in Egypt. He was a Born into the tribe of Ephraim, his father's name was Nun, but apart from that, we don't know much about him. So the joke always is, who is the man in the Bible, apart from Jesus, who doesn't have a father? Joshua. He was the son of Nun. We don't know any... Come on, you heard that in third grade. Seriously. Uh, he is the son of Nun, and honestly, we, we just don't know anything else about him. He's otherwise anonymous. His grandfather was a leader in Ephraim in the wilderness travels. What we do know about Joshua and his background is he evidently had some political and um, military background and training. He was one who was used in uh, some skirmishes as they were going through the wilderness. And of course, he demonstrated unqualified courage at Kadesh Barnea. Everybody else is saying, we're not going in the land. There are giants in there. We're not going. And Joshua said, God promised, we're going. And so Joshua and Caleb stood singularly alone. We know from Deuteronomy 34, notice verse 9, now Joshua the son of Nun was filled with the spirit of wisdom. He was a spirit-filled man. And for all those things, Joshua wasn't Moses. But he was a worthy servant of God. God had a usable, faithful remnant. Israel was not left without a leader for his people. And just like Elijah, the people were not alone. You know, one of the benefits of transitions is that it reveals that the work of God is dependent on God and not man. In his grace, he uses men, but the work is always about him and never about us. I said it. Earlier, I think in my prayer, I've said it a half dozen times probably in the last week. God uses, is pleased to use broken and weak people because that's all he has. And it's true. All of us are broken. All of us are weak. And it just demonstrates, this is 2 Corinthians 4, 7. It just is there to demonstrate that the power comes from him and his gospel and not us. And brothers and sisters, just like there was a faithful remnant in Elijah's day and just as there was a faithful leader in Moses' day to take his place, so God has given a usable, faithful remnant at Calvary. The ministry here, the leadership of the ministry here has not changed. The leader is still in heaven. In his grace, 
he has seen fit to shuffle some of the fallible, weak people that he's going to use among you to lead you. But he's left you a faithful remnant. It's been my privilege to get to know Randy over the last nine months-ish, approaching a year, and what a sweet brother he is. And we've become good friends. And I'm thankful for him. The Lord has left you a faithful shepherd. And he's left you a faithful shepherd in Joshua, in, in, Joshua, in, uh, in Jason as well. Did you notice Joshua and Caleb were the only ones that said no, or said yes, let's go into the land. When the t- ten spies said no, let's not go into the land, there are giants. And Joshua and Caleb were the only ones that made it through the wilderness unscathed and alive to enter the promised land. Everybody else, all the other adult, the adults died. And so Joshua takes leadership. God says to Joshua, you're my man. But, but Caleb is no, you know, wallflower. He's prominent in the book of Joshua. He's prominent in the conquests. He's a usable, faithful Godly servant who's used mightily in the people. And God's given you, God's given you a Joshua and a Caleb and Randy and Jason. And we thank the Lord for that. They are well equipped to shepherd you, to minister to you, to guide you. Verse 1, the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, what did he say? Verse 2, Moses, my servant, is dead. Why don't you just pack up, go back to Egypt, and quit now because it can't be done? Oh, that's not what your text says? Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, because he is dead, now, therefore, arise and cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Moses was dead. Oh, but God's purposes weren't dead. God's plans were not stymied by his death. His plans were going to be accomplished in an entirely unanticipated and faithful way. And notice the key phrases in these verses. Verse 2, I am giving. Verse 3, I have given. And verse 4, this will be your territory. I've given. I've done it. It will be unalterably. And all those point to the fact that God's fulfillment of the promise of the land to Abraham would happen. Now, God had made the promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, hundreds of years before. Abraham believed it. It was accounted to him as righteousness, and he never saw the fulfillment of it. Hundreds of years would pass before he saw the fulfillment of the promise of the land. And yet, God is faithful. And he said... It has happened. Now, they're still sitting on the other side of the Jordan. They've not crossed yet. And there is that little thing about getting across the Jordan and how are they going to accomplish that. They've not done it yet, but God says it's as if it's completed. I am giving. I am in the process of giving. That's verse 2. Verse 3, I have given. It's done. It's finished. It's complete. Now, they're not over there yet, and they haven't conquered the nations yet, but God says, in my mind, it's done. You've got it. God's given the land. Listen, Joshua's task of leading the people was not his task, but his task. 
It was God's promise to Israel that would be fulfilled, not Joshua's promise. And it was God's reputation that was on the line if it didn't come about, not Joshua's. This is all about God, and it's all about the revelation of Him and His trustworthiness and His faithfulness to fulfill and keep His promises. As I mentioned, there is still that one little obstacle, a rise, cross. Uh, just how are we going to do that with all these people? And God showed him, just like at the Red Sea, let me show you what I can do in nature. And he held back the water, he dried the land, and they crossed the river. Which again points to the fact, what? It's God's work, not Joshua's. It's all about God. It's not about Joshua. The book that bears his name isn't about him. It's about the God who appointed him and used him in his weakness. There is a constancy to what God would do. Notice verse 3. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you. Watch this. Just as I spoke to Moses. I promised it to Moses. He could have said, as I promised to Abraham. I've been promising it from Abraham forward, and Moses got it as well, and I will do it. I said I would do it, and I'm going to do it. Brothers and sisters, God has made multiple promises to his people, not just to Israel, but also to the church. Christ said in Matthew 16, 18, that the gates of hell would not prevail against his church. He would preserve his church. You can trust that. You're safe in the arms of Christ. He's keeping you. I know there's massive transition. He is keeping you and preserving you. God spoke again to Joshua, verse 5. He said something else to him. Verse 5, what did he say in verse 5? No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. What did he promise? He says, I will be with you. What's interesting, in verses 3 and 4, there's a, there's a movement back and forth. You can't see it because um, most English translations are very plain when they use the second person pronoun, you. They can't distinguish between you and y'all. So I think it, we, need a, we need a good southern translation where we have y'all. And you can't see it in verses 3 and 4, but there's a, there's a back and forth between you, Joshua, and y'all people. And you can't see that, but in verse 5, he changes it. And from verse 5 to the end of this passage, it's all you, Joshua, singular. And he's telling Joshua, I'm with you. I will be with you. No man will be able to stand against you. I will give you strength to overcome every nation as the promised land is inhabited. Was God faithful to do that? Listen to, listen to what uh, Joshua records in chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 40. Thus Joshua struck all the land, the hill country and the Negev and the lowland and the slopes and all their kings. He left no survivor, but he utterly destroyed all who breathed just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded. God struck them from Kadesh Barnea, even as far as Gaza and all the country of Goshen, even as far as Gibeon. Joshua captured all these kings and all their lands at one time. Because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. It wasn't Joshua. 
It wasn't Caleb. It wasn't the hordes of two million people. It was God who was fighting and God who accomplished and God who stood before them. As Joshua comes near the end of the book, notice what he says in chapter 21, verse 43. So the Lord gave Israel all the land which he had sworn to give to their fathers and they possessed it and lived in it. And the Lord gave them rest on every side according to all that he had sworn to their fathers and no one of all their enemies stood before them. But the Lord gave all their enemies into their hand. Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. All, all, all God. He did it. Why? Because he's faithful. He can't do anything else. He has promised it. He must be faithful. Notice this as well. I'll stand before you. Just as I've been with Moses, I will be with you. There's a, there's a kind of discourse that when you try and defend an argument, you have a positive statement and a negative statement. We call them affirmations and denials. And that's what's going on here. God affirms something. I will be with you. And then he denies what he can't do. I will not fail you. I will not forsake you. That word fail is the word weak. And it has the sense of, I will not drop you. Isn't that comforting? I think often about Psalm 63, 8. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. I cling to you, but I am not stuck to you by my strength. I am upheld by you. That's how I'm stuck to you. God is the one. God is the one that is working. There is nothing in God that would fail Joshua. There is nothing in God that would fail to Israel. He would come to their assistance. And this is also a subtle reminder, isn't it? That for all that Moses had been to Israel, Israel didn't need Moses. It needed the Lord. I love Dan. I've learned so much from Dan. I, I don't just say that. I have. I, I, the first time I heard Dan talk about parenting, I thought, brother, where were you when I was raising my kids? Seriously. I thought, man, that was wise. That was helpful. And I've heard him teach and preach lots of times. Sometimes I was awake. Sometimes I was asleep. <laughs> and he's been such a blessing to you. You don't need Dan Kirk. You need the Lord. Dan Kirk will fail and fade away. Terry Enns will fail and fade away. Randy Barlow will fade away. All your elders will fade away and you have the Lord. And that's what you need. And he will not fail you. There's no drop in the Lord. He doesn't lose his own. He keeps them, preserves them. told you I wouldn't be done by 11.35. In this passage, we're being reminded to trust God, right? Trust His sovereign will. Trust His gracious promises. When I put the outline together, I wanted you to be reminded that the promise that He is particularly pointing to is the promise of His presence. He's going to be with you. Trust His gracious, present promises. Last thing I want you to see. 
Trust God's wise, revealed word. Trust God's wise, revealed word. Because of what God has revealed to Joshua about himself, he then calls Joshua to act. So God's telling us something about himself. He's telling Joshua something about himself, but he's not just saying, well, this is all about me. There's also, there's also a human responsibility. What do we do with what we've been told about God? Verse 6, I'll be with you. I will not fail you. So be strong and courageous for you. Now we know that it's not Joshua doing the work, right? We've just unpacked that. It's not God. It's not Joshua that's giving the land. It's God who's giving land. But then notice what God says, because you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give to them. So I promised and I, 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 uh, I made the covenant that would bring it about, but you still have to act. And you still need to do something. So you need to be strong. And in your strength, what you need to do, particularly in verse 6, he says, is be faithful to take possession of the land. And oh, by the way, remind yourself that this is me and not you that's doing it. Be strong and courageous. That little phrase, be strong and courageous, is repeated four times in this chapter. Verse 6, verse 7, verse 9, and verse 19 is repeated again in chapter 10 verse 25 and it's paraphrased at the end of the book chapter 23 interestingly it's also the very first command that's given to Moses Deuteronomy 138 be strong and courageous why does he say be strong and courageous why does he say be strong and courageous be strong and very courageous be strong and courageous be strong and courageous why because the temptation is to be weak and timid The temptation is to forget that God is provided. The temptation is to forget that God is sovereign. The temptation is to forget that God has made a promise and He will keep it and He will see you through and He will provide. One of the most recent things I've preached at our church as we went through Hebrews chapter 11, looking um, at those men of faith. And what we found is that book really, that chapter really isn't about faithful men. It's about a faithful God who uses weak men. And what he does in setting up that chapter at the end of chapter 10, the end of chapter 10 is actually probably a a preface or a prelude to chapter 11. He says this in Hebrews 10, verse 35, reminding these people who are willing and thinking about and contemplating leaving Christ to go back to the Old Testament law so that they can escape suffering and escape difficulty and get back to a life of ease. He says in 1035, Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. It's coming, brothers. It's coming. Just hold on. Don't give up. And the Lord will bring what is promised. And that's exactly what he's calling Joshua to do here. Be strong, be bold, be courageous and do what I've called you to do and I will bring it about. Be strong, be courageous. Notice this as well. He says at the end of verse 6, I promise to give this land to their fathers. God's not changed. He made the promise in Genesis chapter 12. He reiterates it in 13 and 15. He says it again to Isaac in chapter 26. He says it again to Jacob at the end of the book. And he says it all the way through 
the rest of the books of the Pentateuch. I'm going to bring you into the land I promised and I have not changed. You act. Be bold. Be courageous. The second call to action is given in verses 7 and 8. Be strong and courageous by obeying God's revealed word. So first, be strong and courageous because I've promised. Then secondly, be strong and courageous by, that's the means of obeying God's revealed word. Notice in verse 7, he says, Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. So twice he's affirming, this is law, this is dictate, this is, this is imperative, and it's a command, it's a requirement, it's a duty. It is not what Ted Turner rewrote and called ten voluntary initiatives. No, it's God's unqualified, eternal, infinite command and law. Brothers and sisters, we don't get to pick and choose what we do. It's all good for us, even the hard parts. Behind this admonition is also a reminder that God had promised to bless Israel when she obeyed and curse her when she disobeyed. That's back in Deuteronomy 28 to 30. There's blessings and cursings. Obey me, I'll bless you. Disobey me and I will curse you. There will be discipline and suffering. And that is implied here in verse 7. At the end of verse 7 and then in verse 8, I'll say it's explicitly stated, do this, don't deviate, don't turn from the left or the right, don't, don't, just, don't just make a slight adjustment to go to the left, no, stay straight on course so that you may have success. If you obey, there's success. Notice the end of verse 8. Then when you obey, you will make your way prosperous and then you will have success. You obey me, there's success. You disobey me, there's not success. It's the principle of sowing and reaping. Now remember, when Joshua says this, how much of the Bible do they have? I mean, we've got, I mean, this is pretty stout, right? It's, I don't know, 1,500 or 2,000 pages. At this point, they had Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And notice that at this point, it's all recognized as being authoritative, not from Moses' hand, but God's hand. God has spoken. It's not Moses' word, it's God's word. And it's authoritative. And even when you have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, it demands compliance and following. And it, it promises sufficiency and wisdom and authority. It gives you what you need even in that moment. You're familiar with these truths. This pulpit has stood for these truths for decades. It is preached here, it is taught here, it is counseled well. Maybe you need a reminder. Your strength is not your current pastor, Dan, or your future pastor, Randy, or Jason, or the other elders, or your small group leaders, or your counselors. Your strength is the word of God alone that's your hope now you have faithful shepherds who will lead you but they will lead you to this book and by this book and that's what you need be strong and courageous your strength is in the word of God 
your, your, your word that you have in your hand is a sure haven in the storms of life. It will provide direction as you navigate those storms. It will make you wise. You just need to obey it. The third call to action, be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed. That's verse 9. That's the third time he's now called them to be strong. And God reminds Joshua, it's a command. Have I not commanded you? Haven't I told you? Be strong, be courageous. It's not optional. Listen, being strong is not accidental. It's obedience. You see a strong man, you're looking at an obedient man. It's not just, well, you know, God has just graced him. No. Yes, God has graced him. But he has graced him with obedience to do what God has said. And that's what's made him strong. How are they going to be strong? How's Joshua going to be strong? Do not tremble. Do not be dismayed. The Lord is with you wherever you go. God is not minimizing the task. Things had not changed for Israel. There were still giants in the land. The cities were large. The walls were impressive. Joshua undoubtedly felt weak and inadequate, but God was present, and that would make all the difference. And that's what makes all the difference for us as well. God is present. Circumstances had changed for Israel. The wilderness wanderings were over. Moses was gone. The manna was about to dry up. Wartime battles were about to begin. Everything is changing. But God's word and God's promises had not changed and they have not changed since that day. They're still faithful. They're still good. What is God saying here? Don't fear because you have me and that's all you need. The promise made to Joshua and Israel is the same promise that God makes to all of his people. He is always ever present with his people. Read Psalm 139 this afternoon. God is present with his people. It's the promise that Jesus made to the disciples as he departed them in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. And it's the promise that the writer to the Hebrews makes to those people as well. Hebrews 13. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? He's with me. What can happen? I'm safe. Dan, wherever you go, the Lord is with you. You're safe. Randy, wherever you go, the Lord is with you. You're safe. Dear people of Calvary, wherever you go, the Lord is with you. You're safe. Your circumstances may not be safe, but you are safe, and he will see you home. Transitions remind us that there's nothing stable in this world. Some of us like stability. And we don't have it. We're surrounded by change. And change involves trials and suffering. And in this world, that suffering is inescapable. I cannot promise you a trouble-free life. 
I cannot promise you a trouble-free church, but I can promise you a God who is trustworthy in the trouble. The, the boat is rocking. I get it. But you're safe in the shepherd that is with you. One shepherd's departing. A new shepherd is coming. The great shepherd is where he always has been at the right hand of the Father, leading you, preparing you to come home to him. You trust him and you're safe. Father, thank you for this good word. So much more that could have been said. Might you bring encouragement to our hearts as we meditate on these things the rest of this day, the rest of this week. And would you be with these dear people? We do not understand, Father, why you have laid aside their shepherd. We love him. Our hearts grieve. But it is not necessary for us to know why. What is necessary for us is to trust you and to obey you. And we believe, Father, that in the hardness of this severe mercy, that you are good. And as the psalmist says, you are doing good. Might we lean on that and follow unwaveringly, not deviating in the slightest to the right or left, the good shepherd of the sheep, Jesus our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.